2. Page 686. So there are five chapters in Lamentations. Each chapter is a complete poem. We considered the first poem last time. We turn our attention to the second poem this week. So again, we hear the word of the Lord. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, he has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raise a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars, her king and prince's are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. 
but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Thus far in God's word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the wake of any national disaster, you inevitably hear people ask, if there is a God, why is there such terrible suffering? People look around at destroyed homes and destroyed buildings and the loss of life and suffering, and they cannot believe that a good God would allow this. But as we noted last week, that way of thinking is based on at least two incorrect assumptions. The first is that God can only be a good and kind God. And the second is that we human beings are very good and we do not deserve to suffer. And we began to see that these two assumptions were false last Sunday, with the help of a woman we called Lady Zion. In Lamentations, the city of Jerusalem is personified as a noblewoman, and Jerusalem is also called Zion in the Bible. So we call this woman Lady Zion. And in various ways, Lady Zion teaches us three things in the poems of Lamentations. I wonder if you can remember what those three things are. The first one is to do with man, and it is that he is really, really bad. The second one is to do with God, and it is that he is 
really, really angry. The third one is to do with grace. And it is that grace is really, really powerful. Man is really, really bad. God is really, really angry. And grace is really, really powerful. And last Sunday, as we considered the first of the five poems of Lamentations, we read about the destruction of Jerusalem. And we saw that the destruction was deserved because of the incredible wickedness of the people of Judah and Jerusalem for many generations. And we noted that as nations and as individuals, we also commit bucket loads of sin. By nature, we are depraved. And this is in terms of what we do, what we do not do, and our internal motivations and desires. So the first assumption behind the, if there is a God, why does he allow suffering question, which is that man is basically very kind and very good, is incorrect. Man is, in fact, really, really bad. But as we come to chapter 2, the focus changes to the second assumption behind there, if there is a God, why does he allow suffering question, which is that God can only be a good and kind God. In chapter 2, we are again going to read about the destruction of Jerusalem. We are again going to see that man is really, really bad. But the main truth explored in chapter 2 is that God is really, really angry. So in the second poem of the five in Lamentations, a retold tale of destruction reveals the extent of God's wrath. While God is a good and kind God, He is also just and He is also a God of fierce anger when it comes to sin. Now, chapter 1 divided into two main sections. We first of all heard from this narrator or storyteller who described Lady Zion's grief, and then we heard from Lady Zion herself. Chapter 3 is divided into three sections. We again hear from the narrator who describes Lady Zion's grief, and at the end we hear from Lady Zion herself, but in the middle section we hear the grief of the narrator, his own personal grief. So these are the three sections that will be our main headings today. First of all then, the description, the narrator's description of Lady Zion's grief. And as we scan our eyes through verses 1 through 10, which is where we find the description of Lady Zion's grief, we see a very similar description of destruction and devastation that we found in chapter 1. In verse 1, we read about the splendor of Israel. In verse 2, about the habitations of Jacob and the strongholds of Jerusalem and the kingdom and its rulers. In verse 3, we read about the might of Israel. In verse 4, all who were delightful in our eyes. And in verse 5, about the palaces and the strongholds. 
So verses 1 through 5 describe the ruins of the palaces and the, and the armies and the strongholds of Jerusalem. They all lie smashed to smithereens. In verse 6, we read of the meeting place, the booth, the house of the Lord, the festival, the Sabbath, the king and the priest. Verses 6 through 7 are a description of the temple and the worship life of Jerusalem, which have been utterly laid waste. Verses 8 through 9a, the focus is on the walls and the gates that once so beautifully surrounded Jerusalem and, and gave protection from her enemies, but the walls and the gates lie crumbled in ruins. Take a trip into the center of Christchurch and you will see the Christchurch Cathedral. Uh, it's certainly damaged, but it's still recognizable as the cathedral. And in the minds of Jim Anderton and his friends, it can even be rebuilt. But that was not the case with anything in Jerusalem. It was utterly laid waste, a pile of dust and rubble. But as we come to verses 9b and 10, the focus changes from the buildings to a group of people. We read about kings and princes and the law and prophets and the elders of the daughter of Zion. Those whose calling it was to teach the people of Judah the law of God and holy living. Judges, elders, priests, kings. These are either dead or they have been taken into exile among the nations. There is no vision from the Lord. We are told they sit in silence and in sackcloth. You see, at this time in Judah's history, godly prophets and elders and priests and kings were few and far between. The vast majority of them were greedy and corrupt and idolatrous and immoral and unjust. Back in Jeremiah 18, the Lord told Jeremiah to go to the people and to warn them about what would happen if they continued in their sin. And Jeremiah did. Listen to how the people responded. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah, for the teaching of the law by the priest will not be lost, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. Did you catch that? They didn't like what Jeremiah was saying. So they said to themselves, there's more prophets in the world than just Jeremiah. Let's attack him. And one quick observation in relation to this point is that we make the same mistake today when our elders confront us with our sins and we don't like what they are saying. And so we say to ourselves, well, there are more churches in Christchurch than Dovedale. I will go somewhere where they give people a little bit more space with their life and where the tone is a little bit more positive and, and upbeat. 
But do you remember the words of Galatians 6 verse 7 that we referred to a couple of times last Sunday? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That is exactly what we see described here in Lamentations. Because her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit in the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. Having ignored the word of the Lord, they have had the word of the Lord removed from them. Wisdom in Judah is as much a pile of rubble as the buildings. Now we don't really have to plow through chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter two, to see that this came about because God was really, really angry as a kind of hidden meaning or a, a possible interpretation. It's as plain as the nose on your face as you read through these verses. Just look at the very first line of the very first verse. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Lady Zion lies there in the ruin and the rubble and there is the dark cloud of God's furious judgment hanging over her. It is the wrath of God at her wickedness that has brought all this destruction upon her. And we see just how fierce and furious the cloud of God's wrath and judgment is as we walk through verses 1 and 10 again. And take note of the point that the narrator is hammering home again and again, which is that God is really, really angry with sin. We see it at the end of verse 1 where we are told that all this happened in the day of his anger. In the middle of verse 2, his wrath. In the beginning of verse 3, his fierce anger. At the end of verse 3, where he is described as burning a flaming fire and consuming. In the beginning of verse 4, he is like an enemy. In the middle of verse 4, he has killed. The end of verse 4 speaks of his fury. Beginning of verse 5, he is like an enemy again. In the middle of verse 5, he is laid in ruins. In the beginning of verse 6, he is laid waste. At the end of verse 6, his fierce indignation. And in the middle of verse 8, he did not restrain his hand from destroying. God is really, really angry with the sins of the people of Judah. And this should not come as a surprise to anyone who has read Leviticus 26, as we did earlier. There God told Israel exactly what would happen if they stubbornly continued in their sins and refused to repent. He laid it out so plainly. Think also of the Ten Commandments, where God says that He is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And if you know the story of Israel, you will know how patient God was with the people 
how again and again he gave them another chance. He sent them another prophet. He raised up another king who was godly. But Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. He's not a benign cosmic teddy bear who can just lie there and wink at sin and say whatever. He is really, really angry with sin and with sinners. He must be. He has to be to be a holy God. And as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, contrary to what many professing Christians believe, God doesn't become a gentler and and kinder God who just loves everyone. That's why we read Hebrews 12 earlier in the service. Our God is a consuming fire. God is really, really angry with sin. So the destruction of Jerusalem teaches us that God is a righteous judge who will not leave the guilty unpunished. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Guilty sinners, which is what we all are, deserve God's eternal condemnation. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. One day at the end of time, the Lord Jesus is going to come back to earth from heaven. And he will gather all of those who are living and the resurrected bodies of all those who have ever lived. And he will judge all mankind. And all those who are stubborn and unrepentant sinners are going to be banished from God's presence into the place of fire and darkness and loneliness and agony that is hell for all eternity. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 25 when he said that on that day he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the abject destruction and devastation and despair we're reading about here in Jerusalem gives us a hint of the total despair that awaits unrepentant sinners in hell. But Jesus ended his discourse in Matthew 25 with these words. He said, All these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How is that possible? If we are really, really bad, and God is really, really angry with sin, how is it possible that we can enjoy eternal life? Well, this leads us to our second heading, which is the grief-stricken cry of the narrator. 
And we see that in verses 11 through 19. As we hear this description of the destruction of Jerusalem, it's kind of easy to imagine that we've been, you know, we're looking at a TV screen and we're seeing all of this devastation and ruin. And we can imagine the cameraman has got his camera and, and we're watching the pictures and, and we can hear the voiceover of the narrator describing everything that he sees. But as we come to verse 11, it's as though the narrator can no longer stand at the side and just describe this. He's so upset by what he sees that he comes round to stand in front of the screen. And so you can see in these verses that he starts talking about my people and, and we see a description of, of his own tears. He has been weeping, we see in verse 11. He has been vomiting as he tells us that his bile is poured out to the ground. And it is especially the death and devastation that has come upon the children of Jerusalem that has so upset the narrator because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And at the end of verse 12, as we read of their lives being poured out on their mother's bosom, he tells us that infants are dying at the very place where they ought to receive the nourishment that they can only get from their mothers. As I read those words, I was reminded of those TV appeals for famine in Ethiopia that we sometimes see. Those malnourished infants pressed to the empty breasts of their skin and bone mothers. It's just so sad to see. Verses 13 to 19 are his own personal lament about the things that he has just been describing. Verse 14, he recognizes the damage inflicted on Lady Zion by those false prophets Verses 15 and 16, he talks about the mocking and the scorn of the surrounding nations. But in verse 17, he acknowledges that all of this has come about exactly as the Lord said it would, to generation after generation of Jews. The Lord has done what he purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. The narrator knows the first part of Leviticus 26. God has only done what he warned Israel he would do if they stubbornly refused to repent. But do you remember how Leviticus 26 finished? We read these words, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers so that I brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, I will not spurn them. Neither will I destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. The narrator knows this part of Leviticus 26 as well. He knows that while God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, he is also a God who delights to show love to 
a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And he knows what God says in Ezekiel 33:11, as surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So knowing all this, the narrator now calls on Lady Zion to confess and to repent. Notice his question at the end of verse 13. Who can heal you? It's a small question. Just a few words. It's just a brief sentence, but it directs Lady Zion's attention to the only one who can bring relief and rescue and restoration, the Lord. And so from verse 18, the narrator appeals to Lady Zion, Arise! Cry out at night, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. And what we have here, people of God, is a demonstration of evangelism. The narrator knows that Lady Zion is a sinner. He knows that God is really, really angry with Lady Zion's sin. He knows that Lady Zion deserves God's judgment. But he also knows that God is a God of love, mercy, patience, kindness and compassion. A God who delights to forgive the repentant sinner. And such is the narrator's love for Lady Zion in her misery that he comes to her with the solution, confess your sins. Turn to the Lord who can heal you. Look to the Lord for deliverance. There's a very important lesson in this for you and me. You see, so much that passes for evangelism today goes like this. God loves you and he has a perfect plan for your life. Just accept Jesus and all will be well with your job and your health and your marriage, and then after that, you get heaven. That's not the appeal of the narrator, is it? He cries out, Repent before it's too late. Seek the Lord. And again, don't fall for that claptrap about a gentler New Testament God. In Acts 17, Paul speaks to the unbelievers at Athens, but his message is exactly the same. God created all mankind. The times of idolatry and ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Evangelism is telling people that they are really, really bad, that God is really, really angry with their sin, but that God's grace in the Lord Jesus is really, really powerful. Brothers and sisters, you know that the person in the house over the fence from you or 
your, the workmate in the cubicle next to yours or the student at the desk, desk next to you or the person in your netball team is a sinner. And you know that God is really, really angry with their sins and with them as sinners. And you know where they will go if they do not repent. You also know that the only way to escape the judgment of God is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You know that all those who believe in Jesus in this way shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So the question is, do you love them enough to tell them this? Do you love them enough to give them the solution, to point them to the Lord Jesus? That is the gospel that dying sinners need to hear. So the grief-stricken cry of the narrator is a call to tell sinners the truth about sin, judgment, and salvation in Jesus Christ. But lastly and very briefly, we need to consider the grief-stricken cry of Lady Zion. And as we come to her response to the appeal of the narrator, we can only conclude that Lady Zion has not yet come to the place of true repentance. Yes, she calls on the Lord, as we see in verse 20, but it's only to draw his attention, as it were, to her misery. How can this be, Lord? Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? And in verse 21, her words have the ring of accusation to them rather than humble acknowledgement. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. And as verse 22 ends, she calls God her enemy. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the Lord no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. In effect, she is saying to the narrator, how can I pray to the Lord? He is my enemy who has done this to me. As one commentator says, it is an agonizing and unresolved ending to the chapter. Lady Zion has not yet come to see that she is really, really bad and that God is justly really, really angry and that her only hope is God's really, really powerful grace in the Lord Jesus. In Ephesians 6 verse 2, fathers are warned not to exasperate their children. And one of the ways we fathers and mothers can be guilty of this is inconsistency. We let something go one day and the next day we come down on it like a ton of bricks. Or we punish one child for doing something but not the other. Sometimes we make the mistake of handing out a big punishment for what was really a small misbehavior. 
or a child gets punished for something they did not even know was wrong or worse, that they did not even do. These are some of the ways that parents can exasperate their children. And that means children feel themselves to be the victims of a huge injustice. And I'm sure every one of us here knows what that feeling is like. Well, at the moment, Lady Zion feels exasperated by God. She thinks God has been unjust and unfair to her, over the top. She cannot yet see that she deserves the angry judgment of God. But what about you? Sorrow or tragedy or disaster was to come into your life today, would you be upset with God? Would you think it unfair of God? Would you shake your angry fist at God for treating you like this? Or would you humbly acknowledge that you are a sinner who actually deserves God's wrath and judgment? Now listen carefully. This is not to say that every sickness or every sorrow, is a direct punishment of God for a specific sin you have committed. You only need to think about Job to see that that is not the case. The point is that we are not innocents who do not deserve suffering at all. We are all sinners who deserve God's judgment in this life and in the next. Our response ought to be the response of the psalmist in Psalm 38. And it's going to be the response of the psalmist as we take up our Psalter hymnals to sing number 38 as a song of confession. We're going to remain seated as we sing this song because I have just a few brief words to say at the conclusion of this song before we sing another song. So turn to number 38. And as you open to that psalm, you will see that it is a song of confession. With these words, we recognize that we deserve the wrath of God. We confess our sin. We call on the Lord to deliver us as our Savior. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we remain seated, stanzas 1, 2, 3, 10, and 12 of number 38.